0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, good evening again. We're going to be in our Bibles tonight in the book of Nahum, if you would turn there, please. I have leftover material from my studies in this before that I didn't get to when we looked at it last time, actually quite a bit. And so I'd like to touch on that Again, this evening, if you turn your Bibles to Nahum, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you'll recall that uh, Nahum is the follow-on book to Jonah. Jonah preached the word to the Ninevites, and uh, he preached a message of judgment. That message of judgment was God's mercy to the people. In fact, because it alerted them to a an upcoming, impending disaster, and they turned from their wicked ways, and God decided to hold off his punishment to them. Of course, he knew that in advance, and he knew what he was doing in sending Jonah. And the, the book of Jonah really hinges on Jonah's bad response to God's sovereignty and how God shows him that he needs to uh, tune up his thinking. In terms of uh, care for a massive creation of God, uh, Jonah you know, cared greatly for that little plant that gave him shade, But um, unfortunately, he uh, missed the point about the Ninevites, 120,000 at least, plus all the animals there that he was hoping would be destroyed. But God had extended mercy to them. A century later, Nahum writes, chapter 1, verse 1, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. And the flower of Lebanon wilts, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence, yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe, and likewise many, Yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, (coughs) I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer out of the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. (coughs) Behold... On the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So the last time we looked at this, we spent a few moments thinking about the history of Nineveh uh, and the uh, fortifications that were there, the grandeur of the city. We talked briefly about Nahum personally, and we then talked about um, some of the message about God that we see in the book, more <clears throat> major themes with regard to the character of God in Nahum. We saw that God is a jealous God, he's an avenging God, he's a long-suffering God, he's a righteous God, and he's an all-powerful God. <clears throat> we also saw, well, I don't think we got this far, but in my study I did at least, that uh, Nahum calls out an evil plot against God. That plot seems to be one that was against God through the means of the nation of Israel. So when people were plotting against the nation of Israel, they were really plotting against God. Um, In Zechariah chapter 2, it says the following. Let me just... uh, Navigate over there, Zechariah 2, 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You touch Israel, you touch the apple of God's eye. And just like one who persecutes Christians, the Apostle Paul persecuted Christians, and so doing he persecuted Christ, yes? Yes? So these were making evil plots against God. We saw that in in our reading in verse 9. What do you conspire against the Lord? Verse 11, from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. I just make the note here that anyone who plots against God ultimately plots against themselves. Yes, Uh, Proverbs 26, 27 Proverbs twenty six, twenty seven. Whoever digs a pit, will fall into it. Uh, the idea of the evil laying a snare. In the end, the snare is going to snare themselves. You know what I'm saying? Um, also, Proverbs twenty two, twenty four. Says this make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. So the idea of plotting against God is a very foolish notion that unbelievers think that they will do. And uh, in this case, doing it through the, the means of plotting against the nation of Israel. We also saw... Uh, or see in this book, God's judgment on adversaries generally and also on his as uh, adversaries of Nineveh in particular. Um, and most of chapter 3 covers a lot of the uh, uh, way that God is going to avenge against uh, Nineveh for their evil doing. And then just generally speaks of his enemies. But it's all about Nineveh, basically. The burden against Nineveh, verse 1 says, kind of controls the context of the whole thing. And then finally, we, we see the theme of the salvation of Israel. So we see God, we see uh, the plot against God, we see God's judgment on adversaries, and we also see the salvation of Israel and those who trust in him, like in verse 7. And he knows those who trust in him. Uh, or the Lord uh, is slow to anger and great in power in verse number 3. Um, the salvation that is being spoken of here in Nahum is physical and material as opposed to the destruction that, uh, or how can I say it, the the, the devastation wrought by the Assyrians. So they destroyed physical things and nations, and God was going to restore Israel from that destruction and from that physical devastation that uh, that the Assyrians and Ninevites, as the capital of Assyria did, to them, And the result will be salvation for the nation of Israel. Let me point your attention to verse 15, although it's uh, a bit out of order for me to do so. Um, God's judgment against Nineveh sounds very terrible here, and it's interspersed, as you recognize from the reading, about good news to the nation of Israel with the bad news to the nation of Assyria and the Ninevites and it kind of bounces back and forth a little bit you know what I mean and you're, you can almost get yourself kind of confused as to what is he talking about even within a verse um, you know verse 12 for example uh, though they're safe and many yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through and then it's a period and then though I have afflicted you I will afflict you no more. It almost sounds like uh, he's speaking to two different groups in that verse, and I think you can easily interpret it that way, and correctly so. But if you look at verse 15, it says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings. This is not a prophecy of the gospel, my friends, okay? Let's not be confused about that. In its context, this is a prophecy that somebody is going to come and bring good news to the nation of Israel. In fact, Nahum is bringing that good news right now. And he is going to tell uh, Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. So, what he's saying is, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Sounds very bad. But if it's bad news for Nineveh, it's what for Judah? It's good news, isn't it? It's kind of an odd thing that the same one self same event. The destruction of Nineveh can be bad news for them and it can also be relief and good news for the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. But that is indeed what it is. That's how the Bible's presenting it here. And so you have good news. The news of Assyria's destruction reaches Judah and gives them a season of rest in which they can enjoy peace and keep their religious festivals without fear of attack from the outside and without fear of oppression. Now this is an echo of another prophet, which is found in Isaiah in chapter 52 and verses 4 through 7. Let's look at that for a moment, Isaiah 52. It says, For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore would I have... Uh, What have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Now, that may have seemed only to be regarding a physical salvation for the nation of Israel at the time. And uh, you can easily understand that that's how they would understand it because it's talking about a king reigning over them. It's talking about uh, Assyrians oppressing them, Egyptians oppressing them, and they're going to be delivered from all of that. But the Apostle Paul and Romans ten fifteen reminds us that the real ultimate good news, that good news of salvation that is brought, is that of salvation in Christ Jesus. And although it was not visible to Isaiah's in Isaiah's prophecy, nor certainly in Nahum's prophecy, one of the key elements that has to be brought about for Israel to have true peace is the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And Romans uh, chapter 10 and verse 15 uh, uses that as a, uh, adapts that, if you will, analogizes that quote. It says, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The ultimate glad tidings are that somebody who's a sinner can turn away from their sin and be brought into a perfect relationship with God. And so this is an interesting little kind of thread through the scriptures here. We have from physical deliverance from Assyria and from Nineveh in in Nahum and in Isaiah to an analogy in the New Testament about personal salvation. And ultimately, Israel will not be at peace until they're at peace first with God, and then they'll be at peace with their neighbor's because the neighbors will be subjected to them by the rule of the Messiah, and neither can we have peace, not with God and not ultimately with man and not in our inner souls until we come to know Christ. Are you with me? You cannot have true peace. You can have what the prophets called peace. Peace, they said, but God said there is no peace to the wicked. Yeah, it's only a a, a facade, if you will, a false message of peace. Everybody wants peace, and uh, there is no peace apart from Christ. Nahum is introduced in two ways, going back to the beginning of the chapter, and our focus tonight is just a few thoughts from chapter 1. Introduced in two ways. First, it's a burden, the burden against Nineveh. It's a heavy message, a heavy message. Um, how can we illustrate it? Think of John the Apostle in uh, the middle point uh, or middle section of the book of Revelation. He's told in his vision to go up to an angel and take a book out of his hand and to eat it. And what is the taste of that book? In his mouth it is sweet. And then after it gets down into his stomach, he says, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. That's a picture of the fact that he's got to, and it says there, "You must prophesy again to all to the nations." It's a picture of the fact that the proclamation of God's word is at one at one and the same time sweet, but at the same time it's also bitter, because he's preaching a message of tribulation and of judgment. And so while it's good to preach, like you know, from this pulpit on Sunday morning or from this one here and there's a a measure of satisfaction in that, as the pastor, or in this case the prophet, has to proclaim good news, he's also proclaiming bad news. And it's a a soul-embittering kind of bad news when you have to tell people, if if you don't repent, I mean, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's bitter. That's hard on the stomach sometimes. And... uh, Nahum has this burden against Nineveh. It is a heavy message. It is heavy news for the nation, uh, or the city rather, of Nineveh and the nation that it was the capital of, which is Assyria. It's a pronouncement, a burden, a weighty message against them. And secondly, the Bible says it's the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. It's a vision. God conveyed the revelation to the prophet largely through picture or sight in his mind, uh, you know, the, eye, the eye of his mind, if you will, and, and then he wrote it down. The vivid descriptions that he gives here draw the reader in to this, especially in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 when you see uh, the destruction and woes on the nation uh, of Assyria. Uh, you see the, the battle raging in the streets, there in that place. The message against Nineveh would be a long-awaited and very welcomed message from God to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah who had felt for years the oppression of the Assyrians and knew the fear of those people. Remember, we said the Assyrians were brutal, savage in their treatment of their prisoners. Uh, cruel and unusual punishments were cruel, but very usual in that day and age and so the fear of them the terrorism that they did on other nations would be so wonderful to get rid of that before too long it was going to be several decades before this prophecy would be fulfilled but indeed it would be fulfilled God is all throughout the book of Nahum we mentioned something already about his attributes that we see there his characteristics we see God's wrath In verse 2 and 3a, or 3b, rather, Um, he avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. It's hard to understand this in some ways, but in other ways, it makes perfect sense um, if you think about... uh, a situation which is a dire situation in which you're a victim of something or an ongoing victim of some crime and some police officer comes and executes wrath upon the person harming you, you'll be very glad for that police officer doing his work, even if it ended in the death of the perpetrator of the crime against you, depending on the severity of the crime. And so it is for the people of God that we, although stand in in. in kind of fear of, of God's jealousy and avenging when, he is, when we are on his side and he is avenging those that are his own. We are very glad for that, aren't we? Uh, so his, his wrath is, is evidenced. We see it throughout the New Testament as well. Uh, and I don't have to go to all those verses. I have them in the notes on the website if you want to look at them. But there cannot be any question that God exercises wrath against sin, his son Jesus died on the cross because of God's disposition against sin and His holiness. So that, I mean, if God poured out His wrath upon His son on the cross, which is the clear teaching of the New Testament, don't be surprised or don't be shocked that God will pour out wrath upon those who reject His son. Okay, there no, can be no surprise there about that. We also see God's power and nature. Uh, he has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds or the dust of his feet. Uh, he can redirect the largest river, remove huge swaths of land into the ocean, flatten mountains, send tornadoes, withhold them, and so on. Uh, he is over the earthquakes and every other natural disaster that happens in the world. God uh, judges. That's part of his uh, his wrath. I'll leave that uh, We've talked about that already. Now God has uh, said here, and in, in the prophet, uh, that He will judge Nineveh. They have conspired against God. How do they do that? Well, they conspire against God's people. But before that, even they're completely given over to idolatry. They've destroyed much of God's creation. Uh, don't read into that in a uh, environmental bent on on the part of this pastor, but. It is true that people who wantonly destroy the things that God has made will face His judgment. They are put there to be stewards of that. For instance, one of the passages in the Old Testament law says when you are warring against a city and you're making a siege against it, don't cut down all the fruit trees because that is the thing by which people live. You don't, um, what's the word, uh, Scorched earth. You don't go scorched earth in God's earth. Now some people have, but it doesn't go well for them in the long run when they do that. So the the Assyrians destroyed God's creation. They killed wantonly thousands and hundreds of thousands of their of their victims. They oppressed the nation of Israel. They were they were instruments that God used in judgment. But they went again beyond that which they were supposed to do, and would themselves face His judgment because of their wickedness. They could not find a way way to get out of it. Um, And among these people, there was somebody who plots evil against the Lord, verse 11 says, a wicked counselor. And that appears to be Sennacherib, the king of the nation. So uh, you can see Isaiah chapter 10 about that. Um, And one of the reasons I said they're not going to be able to kind of skate or get out of it is, if you look at verse 12, though they are safe and likewise many. So they're in their walled city, and they think that there's no problem for them. And there's many of them. You know, they think safety in numbers. Well, with God, there's not safety in numbers. If if your whole number is doing evil, it doesn't matter if there are 10 of you or 10 million of you, God will take care of you. So... There will not be safety in numbers. They will be consumed rather like dry stubble burned in a fire. You know, there are a lot of trees in those forests out west. But as soon as a spark goes and it's dry enough, it can burn millions of acres in a matter of days. And it doesn't matter that there are many trees, they're all for the fire, they're all fuel for that fire. Um, they will be drunken. The Bible says, with, I think it means the wrath of the living God. And then there will be relief for those who are afflicted, uh, you know, for the nation of Israel. We sort of talked about that already. The, th- the judgment will be thorough. In fact, it's so thorough that there will be no more descendants. Your name will be perpetuated no longer, verse 14 says. They'll be like an extinction event for Assyria. Uh, Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and molded image. I will dig your grave. Very ominous words, because you are vile. So the idols will be cut off. Dagon, remember Dagon, the fish god, would be destroyed. The king would be killed. I will dig your grave because you are vile. So those are some thoughts from the first chapter of Nahum. We've gone over this uh, before. In fact, it was about seven years ago that we worked on this, and I remember doing some studies in Nahum for seminary. Uh, that was quite a quite a thing to do, and studies in Hebrew, in fact, in the book. Um, a little rusty in the Hebrew, uh, much to the chagrin of my Hebrew teacher, but uh, we still have the theology of the book here before us. And uh, although it is somewhat of a gloomy message because of what God is going to do with the nation of Assyria, we uh, should take lesson from that, that God does judge evil and that it's not something that we can just pretend away. Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah I think that is true, but that was with the philistines philistines and uh so <laughs> when yeah when you have to um when you have to move the God around and prop him up uh that shows you the folly of idolatry you know the the idols are made by men, they can't breathe, they can't talk, they can't think they can't see, they can't hear, they can't move themselves, and yet you're gonna worship them it doesn't You know, this is the folly of unbelief, that people think that way. God uh, told, or uh, Paul told the people in Athens that God is not uh, a molded image like metal or stone or wood, uh, but he's because we're his offspring. If we're his offspring, that means he's at least like we are. In fact, he's way higher than we are, but he's not a piece of stone that gave birth to the human race. People believe such foolish things. But um, anyway, those are some of the characteristics of God. When we read the, New, the, the Old Testament, rather, we can profitably do so by asking ourselves some questions like, what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about man? What does it tell us about sin? What does it tell us about salvation and judgment? And if we get, you know, the, the kind of those categories going, then uh, it helps us to understand what he's saying here. But this, is, uh, this was a prophecy. It became historical fact after it was fulfilled and we are able to read it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the loving kindness you have bestowed upon us. I ask, Lord, that your hand will guide us in our understanding of the word of God here, strengthen us to uh, be obedient to your word, and to recognize uh, the greatness that uh, is displayed of you in these words tonight. Lord, help us to be on the right side that is the side of God and uh, the side which is receiving the good news, not the side that's receiving the bad news. Thank you. Thank you for each one of these people uh, here at the church building tonight, those listening online. Would you touch their lives and any others that may happen upon this recording to have a, a, a zeal for the word, even in these passages that are a little more difficult to understand, that they will integrate them into their theological framework and understanding of who God is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we wish you all a good night. What do you have there? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, that's that... uh, that's that thing we were praying about earlier. So, good night all. We'll have uh, have a good uh, good night and good rest and we'll see you soon. Amen.